Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. Season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s, is supported by Tension Climbing. Wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. This is a story of two roots. Because we almost can't mention one without the other. Because putting the focus on one does a disservice to both. Particularly when the climber, one of only two on the planet, has done both routes. And so in the beginning of October 2020, when Buster Martin clipped the chains on Britain's most famous test piece for only the 10th ascent in over 30 years, the story was only half complete. A year later, a finger injury threatened to end the story prematurely. And that was bad news, because the second half of this story, well, it's all about the fingers. It was actually a finger injury that stopped the legendary Ben Moon himself from becoming the first to tell the whole story. But Buster's smart. He built back up slowly, progressively overloading his fingers on the mono and two-finger pockets he'd need to have on lock. And a year later, he was there, standing in the Vaudkopf in the Frankenjura, beneath the imposing, inspiring limestone bulge that was the stuff of legend. It was nearly exactly two years since he'd added his name to the list of successful suitors of Hubble. And he was here in Germany to add his name to an even more exclusive list. Not just to the list of people who had done this route, because that list is a who's who of legendary climbers. Not to mention the ones who've wanted it so bad they had to lie about having done it. No, he was here to become only the second person in history to have clipped chains on the two most famous sport routes of the 1990s, standard-defining routes that have transcended whatever grade is attached to them. Ben Moon's Hubble and Wolfgang Gulich's Action Direct. Today, though, he was out for a photo shoot and didn't even really want to be climbing, and this was the fifth go of the day. He was thinking mostly about getting to the pub, but if you're going to pull on, why not give it? From the jump, literally, things started going wrong. He wasn't hitting the holds how he practiced. Some of the pockets were wet and he was improvising on the go. High on the route, going for a pocket where he needed two fingers, he came up short, only getting one. And he was coming off. But then, he wasn't. What he was, was making history. Buster Martin, welcome to Written in Stone. Man, I'm glad you are here. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. That was cool to listen to. That felt uh, very nostalgic. It's uh, it's a pleasure <laughs> to talk. It's a pleasure to be on here to talk about those two routes and flattered. Yeah, I, I one of the things I'm most excited about about this series is, 
and I didn't anticipate this when I started writing these episodes, is that everyone else that I'm trying to talk to is also really excited about talking about these roots, you know? So to me, that's really cool to see the excitement on your face the whole time I'm reading this story and watching you go back in time. I love it. Yeah, man, for sure. It's cool how these roots meant so many, these roots and these climbers meant so much to so many different people. Yeah, totally. Before we really dive in here, though, I have a question I have to know the answer to. If you had to choose, which would it be? Punk rock and dreadlocks or red and white striped lycra, a mustache and feathered back hair? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I think the, uh, I don't fancy myself in the Lycra, so I think I'll go for the, uh, go for the dreads. <laughs> I was sure you were going feathered hair and the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The punk rock and dreadlocks, he also had Lycra at the same time, so you're kind of yeah. screwed there. Yeah. It's Lycra no matter what. Yeah, confident guys. I don't, I don't think I've got it in me. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I spoke with Adam Ondra recently. And he said that it's hard to find a route with great aesthetics, great movement, and world-leading difficulty. Like, those were his three criteria. And many people say Hubble lacks some of these criteria. (laughs) Why do you think it's more famous, like worldwide anyway? I don't know what it's like in the UK, but worldwide... Why is it more famous than something like Liquid Amber, which even Ben has said is a much better route? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think for me, that's a fourth part of it. I guess if it, it depends if you're looking for the hardest route in the world. But for me, when I'm looking to repeat a route, I think history is also another really important thing. So Hubble and Liquid Amber both have the history. But mm-hmm. I imagine... Um, Hubble was more in the limelight because it was at the time Ben gave it eight C plus and it was the first eight C plus in the world. And then liquid amber, which was climbed just a month before it was maybe just considered another eight C, even though to me and to many other climbers, it's a very special route and now seems to have settled at eight C plus. It was probably because it wasn't a first and maybe it got less attention in the magazines. And Mm -hmm. now I think Hubble has kind of become, come a little bit more famous than it was a few years ago because of this sort of um, the great discussion between Action Direct and, and Hubble. So I think that's made Hubble in people's heads a little bit more recently. Totally. It's, it always comes down to grade whether we want it to or not. Yeah, yeah. That just, that just comes up, bubbles up to the top always. Yeah. And it's not to say that I think Hubble really has the movement, like it's very technical movement and it's very inspiring movement, but yeah, the line just isn't there. But when you know what it is and you turn up at the crag, I I still look at it and it still provokes some sort of emotion in me. I look at it and see it as something which is like brutally hard. And so visually, there's still kind of something there for me, even if it's not the prettiest bit of rock. Yeah, totally. I get that. Like even like when I travel to a new area, I want to go and see the, the test pieces, even if I've, I have no business climbing on them yeah. uh, or, or if, or if I have no, no agenda to climb on them, I still want to go see them. Like there's just something about looking at that, that chunk of rock that 
provokes yeah. this like historical uh, idealism in us, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, speaking of that, like history, um, there's something I wanted to ask you because I was reading about Hubble. I've never been to Raven Tour. I was trying to understand uh, its like position on the wall and, you know, how the crag looks. And I had read that Hubble joins Revelations at the top, but I also read that Revelations is essentially the direct start to the prow, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Does Hubble join Revelations at the top? So, yeah, it, they both start independently and they have the cruxes of them at the bottom and then they meet in the middle about halfway up and then both of them finish on a rather sketchy technical slab, which has got a bit of a run out in and no one wants to add another bolt because the run outs kind of become, uh, kind of become part of it. And it feels spicy. Sure. Like it's, you really have to stand on your feet and it's kind of like the last thing you want after you've just done revelations or you've just done Hubble and it, it adds something to it. But yeah, you could absolutely continue both of the routes to the top of the crag. So Revelations has been done to the top. It's called Rage, but no one's done no one's done Hubble to the top, which seems a shame. That'd be good to do. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating that right there in that one route, it's like first Ron Fawcett climbed the prow, yeah. and yeah, then yeah. Jerry does the direct start to the prow, and then Ben comes in with this even harder start that eventually joins up with the roots. So having yeah. the the Fawcett, Moffitt, and then Andy Pollitt is kind of the one who turned Hubble into a potential sport climb, calling it Horror Babylon and just pulling on the draws at the bottom. Yeah. So there's so much British climbing history, world climbing history right there in that one little section of rock. It's fucking fascinating to me. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's very, very cool. I remember few years ago being at the crag and a group of school kids were there and they were they were on like their geography trip or something like that and they all had uh, they all had their goggles on and the hammer and chisel and they were getting they were getting dangerously really? close to yeah they were getting dangerously <laughs> close to hubble i think we had to pull them away for it, it got got a bit tense for a moment <laughs> <laughs> wow that's amazing <laughs> they were gonna they're gonna chip hubble into in, back oh, no. into 14c <laughs> <laughs> so after doing a bunch of this research and some of these things i already knew but like reading rereading jerry's book and ben's book and just looking online and re-watching statement of youth and you know learning more and more about this route number one i got more and more excited about british climbing history like, I, yeah. I think there's a whole podcast series of British climbing history that needs to be done. Maybe Niall needs to narrate that or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there, there are a few things, I think, that really contributed to raising the standards of UK climbing, which then in turn raised standards in the world uh, during the 80s and 90s. And first, I think, is the dole. Like, mm -hmm. it's... It's wild to me that there was this whole group of climbers who were essentially being paid as in the mid-1980s, unemployment was huge in the UK. Um, and the government was giving a stipend to pretty much everybody, no questions asked. 
and they just had to come and sign on every couple of weeks and they would get a little money. And that created this whole band of full-time climbers who were like living in a rundown house and had all congregated in Sheffield and were just climbing everything. And, you know, standards were changing or, or like the ethics were changing at the same time. And I think that's the second thing. Ben and Jerry adopted those French ethics almost immediately. You know, these hangdogging ethics that were not the way people were climbing at the time. And then the third, I think, are the cellar walls. And that's what I want to talk to you a little about. Um, first, what made the cellar walls so important? Is it the weather there? Are, are climbers just forced inside all the time? Yeah, I imagine the uh, I imagine the weather was a big factor. It's it's funny what you say though about the doll and all of these things. How how it all came to it all came together, and it was almost as if um, almost as if Hubble and Liquid Amber were like a, a culmination of the last decades of going yeah. to France. Jerry going to America. He learned from John Gill from Backer. And then came and taught it all to Ben. They were training outside Stony Middleton, going to Crestbrook, traversing on the brick edges. And then finally, yeah. I think it was that last thing. They were already very good climbers, but then it was the addition of the steep board climbing, of the proper powerful training and applying and maybe learning from some of the mistakes they'd learned in the decade before. And then like getting some serious training done on the board. And I love the board, but... I think it's also important to remember that it was a, it was all of these things coming together because I think yeah. people really like the idea of like this one exercise that made <laughs> led to right. that, that led to this ascent. It was like what 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 fingerboard routine were you doing before you climbed the hardest route in the world? But right, right. I think it was everything in the decade that came together, and then the the board climbing was really the cherry on top. And Sheffield's, yeah. There's a lot of boards there, and it's probably because of the weather. Um, it's a post-industrial city, so there's a lot of empty warehouses, and also mm. the cellars as well allowed people to put those boards in. I also think that the like rudimentary style of those early cellar walls, just having these, you know, little little tiny wooden holds all over the place, really yeah. basically simply made was probably pretty important to what they were doing because that was the style of climbing of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I, I love giant slopers and compression climbing. And I think if you're going to have a board, you should have some big slopers on them. But yeah, at the time, compression climbing wasn't even really a thing. So it was, it was all fingery little holds. That's what they were looking for outside. And that's what Hubble was. That's what Action Direct was, you know? So yeah they were training exactly specifically for the things that they wanted to do. Yeah, for sure. It maybe wouldn't have been as effective if some of the French climbers were maybe using the board to go out and do some of those long French mm -hmm. routes in the yeah. south of France. But I think to the style of climbing in the Peak District and, and, and in Germany as well is very specific. But I think another thing which is maybe sometimes overlooked is actually that brick wall traversing. So there's a place called um, Broomgrove Wall on one of the, a wall on the side of one of the universities in Sheffield. Yeah. Is this the one Adam Andra climbs in the video? Yeah, I think they took Andra there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and it's and it's really crimpy like really ratty little holes and i think that combined with the with the board climber you've got like the the, the the raw finger strength and then like a bit more power from the board. I think it was a good combination. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I recently, just a few years ago, found an old training notebook of mine yeah. um, from when I was a relatively new climber. And I had been shown this brick wall in Cincinnati um, by some of the like old school tradies that seemed mm-hmm. to have endless endurance, you know, like yeah. the, the legends of climbing in the town I grew up in. And this wall was in a city park and it was the building that housed the pump for this fountain. Yeah. So we call it was called the pump house and nice. we would traverse back and forth on these bricks. And there was a very specific sequence and I had in my notebook, it's above a sidewalk and you could count the like the partitioned off concrete, you know, chunks on the sidewalk. And that's how I counted it in my notebook. Like, you know, got, got four today, got six today, Yeah, nice. finished the traverse, started the reverse traverse, you know, and then I would just for years, I just went and traversed back and forth on these bricks. Yeah, that's cool. Like definitely made a big difference the beginning of uh, sort of structured training. I think the, the thing those walls gave people, like these days everyone's good at like hanging on a nice uniform edge or jumping around on the moonboard and like producing a lot of force and bigger holds. But I think it's really a skill in itself learning to like pull down on pull down on a ratty edge, especially to apply it to the peak district. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I know you're you're a coach as well and one of the things I think gets missed in a lot of the conversation today, maybe partly because of boards, and I've criticized boards for this a little bit. Um, it's not the board's fault, though. It's our fault as climbers is the like loss of control between moves or always yeah. being dynamic, always, you know, moving yeah, with momentum yeah. when, but when it's tiny little bad, uneven edges that you kind of have to wriggle your fingers into. You have yeah. to move with a, a pretty large degree of control sometimes. Yeah, um, absolutely. And those kinds of walls really taught me that. Yeah, nice. I know Malcolm Smith, before he did the second ascent of Hubble, he built a replica of the crux on a board yeah. in one of those cellars. Um, and then very famously, like did a photo shoot where he could just stop and chalk up in the middle of the crux. did you employ anything like that and how much do you think it helped if you did yeah so that's a cool story about malcolm uh i think (laughs) i think he was i think he was actually training up in scotland by himself and i always sort of romanticize this idea of like malk just up in scotland by himself no one around no training partner just like locking locking himself in the boardroom in like glasgow or somewhere rainy and miserable just like going (laughs) at the boards and i think when i was training for training for hubble it was during the first covid lockdown in the uk Mm. and even though i was in the same scenario (laughs) Yeah, even though I was in like sunny Hertfordshire and I built my board outside, but I definitely remember thinking about Malk and I made these little replicas. And at the time we were having like these board meetings 
on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So everyone would like, we would all get on Zoom and like boulder together and people would show off their boulder problems. And my friend Jim Pope, he'd also, he was also working on his Hubble replica and I set a few different Hubble replicas. So that was all good fun. In terms of how much it helped, I think with replica training, you've kind of got to think about how specific you can actually make it. And I knew that on my board, I was never going to be able to make anything like Hubble because it's on a stepped overhang and I'm not very good at setting. So I think my approach, and I also didn't feel like I needed to get too specific. I didn't want to sacrifice everything else in my climbing just to train for this one boulder problem. You know, I think it makes sense if you're like at the top of your game, you've been climbing for a very long time and you've got this like lifelong project you want to do, or you really want to do this climb. But I was still thinking about other stuff. So it was just something I was doing a little bit and I had like a circuit of Hubble problems rather than one super specific Mm. one. So I thought it would be better just to cover all bases and make a lot of things that are similar rather than something which was meant to be exactly the same, but ended up being nothing like it. And I was also doing some specific weight training for Hubble. So doing a lot of bent over rows, bicep curls. The biceps are pretty important on Hubble, like undercuts (laughs) and core tension. And also doing some fingerboarding in a supinated position because Mm -hmm. nearly, nearly every hold is some sort of undercut. So I was just pulling in that position and getting stronger in the wrists. However, that summer I ended up not really climbing. So I'm not sure if any of the, (laughs) so I trained for about a month, like doing all of that stuff, a month or six weeks. And then that summer I was setting up my coaching business. So I didn't really climb, but I think when I was stood underneath the route, maybe all of the, maybe all of the strength gains had gone, but I felt a familiarity with the route and Mm -hmm. it felt I felt like I knew it a little bit more and it didn't feel as intimidating because I've been practicing all of these moves and it had been like a fun thing with my friends. So in that way, I think it helped. I think that's really important. And I would love to talk, you know, take a little tangent for just a second because you are a coach. um, And you're one of the few people I've heard echo my own sentiments about uh, the the popularity of building replicas. Um, I think they're valuable, but I don't necessarily think they're valuable for the same reasons everyone else does. And I don't know that they're, they might be more harmful than valuable to Mm -hmm. someone who's like, you know, relatively new to climbing. You've been in it a couple of years and you're you're just looking to climb your like first 7B or something. Um, yeah. Unless that's the absolute top of your scale that you're ever going to climb. Um, I think it's better to spread yourself around and become more adaptable instead of more conditioned to this really specific thing. Yeah, man. Uh, I totally agree with that. I think the sooner you get specific and the earlier you get too specific, I think you're taking away from your, from your long-term progress. And I, and I think the older you get, the harder it becomes to think about the long term. Because I remember when I was a teenager, the training was always about what I'm going to be doing in 10 years time. And then now Mm. it's always about the next trip. And by doing that, maybe you miss out on really working your weaknesses and doing things that are going to help you in the long term as a climber. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I love what you said about that you felt like it 
you know, by doing this thing uh, that included your friends and was fun, it felt yeah. like you had some familiarity with the route when you walked up to it. And I think that's really important. And yeah. maybe that's the most important part of it, especially for the climbers who are, you know, still um, still have a ways to go in their climbing journey is mm -hmm. to maybe build that familiarity so you can walk up to it and feel ready, feel like you yeah. prepared specifically. yeah, yeah. Maybe you don't have to do as super specific training as is sort of becoming popular right now. Yeah. So it's like you could you could turn up and you're being like, oh, I feel comfortable to use a two finger pocket, or I feel good on this type of crimp, but I've not designed my whole life and my whole climbing around this one piece of thing, and then maybe even miss the mark when you've tried to do that. Right. Right. Well, this this is not my training podcast, so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get off that tangent, um, but. You just mentioned like preparing for the next trip and right now you're in the Frankenjura and I'm curious, you've heard the, you have, I think when this comes out, people won't have heard the Action Direct episode yet, um, but you did hear it and I'm curious, did that play into your decision to go to the Frankenjura or were you already planning this trip? <laughs> uh, yeah i remember saying I, I listened to that and it gave me like goosebumps i was so psyched to listen to it and i remember saying to you like i'm gonna book a flight to the jura i mean i'd kind of yeah. been thinking I, I kind of been thinking about it but it definitely inspired me to to go back i mean i was i was out there belaying uh belaying a friend uh action today so it brought back some memories it's really cool uh, yeah oh, i man, think people I love are gonna that. enjoy that I love it. Even if only 10 people listen to this podcast, that's the best possible outcome that you were psyched to go back. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you just said you're, you're out there belaying a friend on action. And I think that partnership element is so important to climbing hard and to pushing each other. And mm -hmm. we've mentioned several times that Ben had Jerry and, and Jerry had Ben, you know, they, they pushed each other and they competed with each other. Uh, and they've both been open about, yeah, we had some falling outs, you know, yeah. but we'd always come back and we'd always be wondering what's the other person doing and trying to compete. Um, I'm curious, do you have a, a Jerry in your climbing or have you ever? Oh, I don't think I've ever had anyone where I've been sort of like competing with them at all, where it's been like a head to head competition. But I've certainly had a lot of mentors and a lot of people that have uh, given me guidance, helped me with my training and encouraged me and really supported me. And I think that maybe Jerry gave quite a lot of that to Ben. I know they sort of became rivals. They sort yeah, of became definitely rivals. started as a mentor sort of role. Yeah. It, and I think that probably gave Ben, uh, I mean, I'm sure it maybe would have got there without it, but I think it gave him a bit of a head start because Jerry had been to America. He'd seen the training that they were doing. He'd been to Germany. He, he was friends with Wolfgang. And I think that mm -hmm. Ben got to learn a lot of that straight away and then travel around with the best climber in the world, which is usually pretty good for your climbing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think we can safely say that that's a pretty good way to get better at climbing. Yeah, for sure. Who were your mentors? Um, oh, it's quite a long list. So I think the original uh, climbing instructors, Phil and Ben, who first taught me how to tie in, how to belay, and then later some coaches at the Westway as part of the Westway squad were really influential uh, in my climbing. Neil Gresham introduced me to that. 
And then l- later moving to Sheffield, I mean, that's the great thing about Sheffield. I remember moving there and you go to the wall or you go to the supermarket and you're, I was seeing all of these people who I'd been reading about in the, uh, yeah, I remember seeing yeah. like Ron Force in, in, in the market once. And then you go and see <laughs> Ben. <laughs> Yeah, Ben Moon at the school room, Steve McClure at the foundry. So you get to meet a lot of people and it's uh, it's really cool. And being sponsored by Moon and uh, spending time training with Ben at the uh, at the school has been, uh, been really, a really cool experience as well. He's been very supportive of me. Yeah. When you were doing Action Direct, I think I remember seeing that Ben was getting texts from you about how it was going. Um, I don't know if it was that way with Hubble as well, but how fucking cool is it it, to be working on these like historical 90s iconic roots and texting with a guy who was right there in the thick of it as the best climber in the world at the time? Yeah, that was very, very cool. If you'd have told the 10-year-old buster that I'd be uh, like having a beer (laughs) with Ben Moon chatting about like Hubble and uh, Action Direct. I mean, yeah, it, it was very cool. Although I felt a bit, I felt slightly cheeky when I was texting videos of me uh, with the knee bar on uh, the knee bar of Hubble. I'm not sure what you thought of that one. <laughs> I think he's forgiven me. Uh, I love that. And I also just love that you were texting him about the knee bar or videos <laughs> of you in the knee bar. Yeah, yeah. I know that can be a thorny subject a little bit and let's let's talk a little bit about that because i think there there are a few debates around hubble or that sort of concern mm-hmm. hubble and one of those is this knee bar and and especially using a knee pad in the knee bar and i know you sort of debated it and you were hesitant at first but you did end up using a knee pad and why did you end up using it i yeah, to be completely honest, I remember seeing photos of people trying uh, Hubble with the knee pad and actually having a little bit of a giggle about it and thought, how could you do that? Like, how could you do that? It's Hubble. And I remember turning up, at, there's another route at Raven's Tour called Mecca, which um, people didn't used to do with a knee bar, but now everyone does it with a knee bar. And I turned up as like a... That's Martin Atkinson route, right? Yeah, exactly. Really cool route, really... Uh, really classic AP plus it's sort of like everyone's first AP plus from Sheffield and the knee bars made it slightly easier but I think it's still AP plus and I remember turning up at the crag as a 15 year old and people were just starting to use the knee bar and I was like no way like I'm way too ethical for that there's this weight of like British British ethics which I'd read about <laughs> in the magazines the grit stones and all these all of these battles, that ethical battles that people have had, and I'd be like, no, I'm going to have strong ethics. I'm not going to use the knee pads. And then I took time out of climbing and came back to climbing, and the knee pads were just like a totally normal thing. Mm. However, on Hubble, I still felt that it was like a little bit funny because it wasn't the Hubble that I'd like read about and dreamed about this test of raw power. But right. I think it was as soon as um, Matt Wright, who climbed Hubble a few weeks before me, he did it with a knee pad. And then I kind of felt silly not to use the knee pad. It would be like, you know, like someone discovers a new hold on your project and you decide not to use it. And I think it would have turned the route into an eliminate, which would be, which would be a very big shame to ruin such a historical route by adding rules to it. I think that sort of cheapens and dampens the, uh, the piece of climbing to, to add those sorts of rules. 
Yeah, I think that's a really smart take on it. You know, I think one of the things that Ben and Jerry did in establishing these roots, you know, um, when Liquid Amber and Hubble were, you know, at the world leading edge, it was because they had looked at the old ethics and said, no, that doesn't make sense anymore. We're going to move on. Yeah. So, so looking at it and saying, no, that doesn't really make sense. I'm going to do this thing is sort of a, it's honoring what Ben and Jerry did to begin with, I think. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just a development uh, in, equi- in equipment and in styles. Like when Ben bolted Statement of Youth, I know that people weren't too happy about that because he was using bolts. Right. And then there was, right. I guess, the introduction of chalk and of new climbing shoes as well. And mm-hmm. I think there's, I think people hear knee bar and knee pads and they think of like putting your knee in like a massive twofer and taking your hands off and have a rest. Yeah. But the reality is that knee barring is a skill just like hill hooking or toe hooking. And Absolutely. It, it requires, it requires practice and it requires its own set of strengths. And when you watch people like Andra, Dave Graham, Jorge climb, and these guys, I can't touch the knee bars that they're doing. Like it, they're just desperate. Like knee bars require skill and they don't always make everything like totally easy. Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone who is listening and still thinks that knee bars are like always cheating and always just make things way easier, you should go to Waco Tanks and climb on some of the things that have now been done with knee bars some of them it has made them drastically easier but a lot of them the knee bars are so hard to use that it's almost easier for me to not use them because i don't have the knee bar skill yet yeah 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 i want it i just don't have it yet yeah it's funny i almost have to force myself to like put them for me it's most of the time it's easier just to power through and i've been like forcing myself to try the knee bar so i can even if in that moment it's going to be harder for me but just to learn the skill because i think it's use very useful yeah absolutely uh one of the other debates about hubble is and and this i think is an interesting debate that has sort of continued through a lot of climbing history and that's whether it should be graded as a boulder or as a root yeah, it's a tricky one. I think my my thoughts on it is if you're above bouldering pads, it's a boulder problem. And if you're tying into a rope and clipping bolts, then uh, then it's a sport route. Um, I think that Hubble is short enough for it to be a boulder problem. It's like eight moves or something like that. But ultimately, it is a route and it has its own set of challenges. You don't clip any draws on the hard climbing, but you do climbing afterwards and you have to keep and I think Ben fell there, and I think Steve McClure fell there as well. You really have yeah. to keep your head together, and I think that's something which is slightly slightly different from just a pure boulder problem. But I do think that if Hubble had like a nice flat um, grassy landing, even though it's short, like the landing's horrible. Like you wouldn't want to do it without a rope. And if it did have a nice landing, I think it would have seen a lot more a lot more ascent than it has. But for sure, it makes sense to be graded as a route because it it feels like route climbing for sure when you get up on that top head wall. Got it. Perfect. Yeah. And I, you know, when I read that Ben had actually Ben emailed me that he had fallen off of the top and I had not read that yet. Um, I've since seen it in several places, but that surprised me because all I'd heard about it was like, 
oh, it's this, you know, like seven move or so, yeah. you know, boulder problem. And then it's just easy to the top. So in yeah. my head, it was like, oh, no one's falling at the top. But the yeah. reality is people have fallen up there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the nature of the climbing up there. The the part which is, I mean, I guess it has been soloed when Revelations was soloed, but it's a very sketchy type right. of climbing. You have to do these big rock overs and you're on smears. And I think it's probably like a, a 513A or a 7C plus, something like that. So it's not totally mm-hmm. easy. You can fall off that if you're pumped, if your hands are a little bit numb or if you get stressed. Yeah. Well, and the third debate is, was Hubble the first 9A in the world? Um, and I think that's a debate for a whole separate episode because there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot to talk about. And I want to get the opinions of some other people who have climbed or climbed on both or who uh, know the history well. So uh, I do want to talk to you about this, but we're going to do that in a separate episode later this season. And I know much to the chagrin of everyone listening, we're going to move on right past that. Um, And I have a question for you. Uh, this episode is about Hubble, though we're, we're also talking about Action Direct a little here and there. Um, but like I said at the top of this episode, we can't ignore that you've done both. And there was a finger injury in between. And that finger injury, you've said, led you to train more open-handed. And that led you to start considering the pockets on action direct so if it weren't for the finger injury do you think you would have gone and done action direct i mean it was a route which i had always always wanted to do i mean i'm sure there's many climbers that dream of climbing action direct and but i never saw it as an immediate thing um Mm. but i think like i mentioned earlier when you consider climbing performances and what goes together to make a climbing performance, I think it's really important to consider the context. And I think the context of having a finger injury and then spending some time in Spain, getting more comfortable and more confident on pockets is really what spurred me, uh, spurred me to try it like in the short term. But I mean, I, I'd wanted to try it for years, of course. You know, there's this like, if we grow up in a certain scene um, or we, you know, we're really we identify with a certain scene. We tend to like block the other things out like they don't matter. Yeah. Um, so I think it's great that that you were still thinking about like you're you're growing up in this British scene where Hubble is like the the most famous test piece in the country. And you're also thinking about action direct. And I think it's important to note that, you know, Ben went and tried action direct. Yeah. And ended up with a finger injury on it and, you know, even tried to come back, but just wasn't able to climb on that route because of the finger injury. Um, so I think it's important not to like pigeonhole yourself into this one scene. Like, no, it's all about Hubble action direct yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's somewhat, they're, they're somewhat similar. They're, they were both climbed by two legends of the sports and a yeah. lot of hard training went into them. And I think for me, what makes these routes inspiring why I like the historical routes is it's less about the grades. Of course, the difficulties there, but it's more the characters and the stories and mm-hmm. what, led, what led to these ascents and what they meant to me 
as a kid and, and what they still mean to me now. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing this series. You know, I think a lot of the context has been lost. Um, yeah. Or you have to piece it together from 20 different interviews and magazine yeah, articles. Yeah. And, and there's no drama in that piecing it together. And I want to, yeah. I want to put the drama, um, and the inspiration back into these stories. So, so for me, yeah. that's what this is all about, you know? And I initially went into it thinking these stories are about the roots, you know, they're about the ascents, but I couldn't remove the person from that because those characters were so big, so larger than life at the time, you know, and Ben Moon obviously means a ton to UK climbing um, and has reinvented himself over and over to continue meaning a lot to UK climbing. But I'm curious, what does he mean to you personally? Oh, yeah, I think Ben's definitely been uh, been a mentor of mine and been very supportive. He's helped me with my climbing, which has been cool. But it's also been something else I really respect him is the way he applies that same discipline and the same sense of like strong, strong morals or strong ethical opinions to the rest of his life. The way he runs his business yeah. seems to be... Um, He's really focused on trying to make sure everyone's happy, very generous with his business and looking after the next generations of climbers. But I think one of the coolest things I've noticed about Ben, which maybe explains why he's been at the top of the game, his game for so long, and he's still he's still down at the schoolroom on the moonboard. Like it's really cool to see and he's really strong. But he almost has this um beginner's beginner's headspace or beginner's mind when he approaches mm. things and i remember being at rubicon which i'm sure he used to it's a limestone crag in the peak district with some boulder problems there's loads of eliminates and i'm sure he's been climbing there for years but we were climbing there with the moon team and he was he was always asking different things asking people what they were up to and he was exploring mm. different body positions and different movements and I, I found that very very inspiring how he's a master of the sport but he was still he was still humble enough and and open to learning new things from from lots of different people which i found very inspiring wow that's so important and and i feel like a lot of people lose that by the time they're climbing you know yeah. 7a plus they're like yeah yeah I, I know how to do this now you know that's, that's always that, thanks for learn. sharing that that's really important yeah cool when you did both hubble and action direct um you had already climbed harder things you'd already climbed 9a plus mm -hmm. why is going back to those historical roots so important to you oh, yeah i don't i don't think it's about the uh about the numbers like i mentioned earlier it's the i think it's how they inspired me as a kid it's like what i grew up reading like these roots meant so so much to so many different people and i think that's what's something really special about climbing you can hear all of these stories and you get to you get to feel a little bit of it yourself you get to feel what it what ben felt in the 90s and feel a little part of that or experience the same holds and do the same moves that Wolfgang did. And I think that's something very, very special about climbing. I mean, you never get to go and play like on the football pitch with Pele or go and do anything like that. Like that's gone forever, but there's something about climbing, which 
which stays there and people can come and try and just being at action today like people just come to look at it like it's a really beautiful piece of rock but it's yeah i guess it's the idea that it represents of really hard hard training hard focus and the whole sport climbing revelations and um, revolution pardon in the 80s came together to make these two routes and i think that's a really cool thing that you could just go and try them absolutely does it feel different to you now walking up to those having already climbed them well it's, it still feels pretty special to go and look at action direct it's a really uh i still feel that sort of energy like i felt as like a 10 year old when i go and look at that bit of rock it still gives me some sort of goosebumps wow i man i love it i think that's the perfect place to to wrap this thing up um buster I'm glad we were able to make this happen um, while you're trotting uh, around the globe. I love that you've chased down some of this history while also embracing the new methods and the new ethics. You know, in, in my opinion, that's exactly how history should be used. I think that's the most responsible way to use it, uh, kind of as motivation and inspiration and as a stepping stone for how to do things better. So if we get too romantic about it, it threatens to hold us back. So I'm psyched that you're moving forward. Yeah, man, it was uh, it was a, it was a pleasure to to chat to you, and I really like the idea of spreading these stories and these history to the all the history to to a wider audience. It's really cool. Man, thank you, thank you for doing this. Nice one, pleasure. One, two. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. The link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias and together we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time. I'm whispering because my my voice is wrecked. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of interviews recently, and uh, Harper, my 16-month-old, decided I needed to catch her cold or whatever it is she had. I guess that happens when they sleep on your chest for several days in a row. Um, so I've got a cold, and that means interviews are halted for the moment, though I did one this morning um, in my rough voice, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. <clears throat> but first, it occurs to me that if I start this by saying, 
hey, stoners, or something like that, and people didn't hear the first Secret Stoners Club, they're not going to know what the hell to think. Sorry, I had to pause that for just a second. Uh, Harper woke up while I was recording. Now she's right here at the mic. Do you want to say hi, Harps? Yeah. <laughs> Can you say turtle? first encountered a turtle uh, I whispered it and that's how she learned it so that's how she says it every time now what are you gonna say say uh oh uh oh uh oh uh oh uh oh turtle uh oh turtle not going for the combining of words just yet okay where were we um, it occurs to me that the the Stoners Club will confuse the hell out of anyone who's hearing it for the first time. And honestly, I'm okay with that. You know, be confused. Uh, you can always go back and listen. These things are still there. Anyway, I really loved this conversation with Buster. It was a ton of fun to record with him. And I look forward to having him on the training podcast as well because I, I like his coaching philosophy. And I just like his overall philosophy in general. You know, he's definitely not a grade chaser. And he takes great pains to say, I'm not climbing these routes just for the grade. I'm, I'm doing it for the history and for the mystique. And, and I love that. I think it's a really, um, really valuable way to go for your climbing, uh, to follow those things. And, and the grades will come, right? Because if you're... If you're climbing something for the sake of history, it probably made a historical impact. And usually that's related to the grade in some way, shape, or form um, from some time period. So I think it's a great way to go. I also want to let you in on a little uh, behind-the-scenes secret here. Because we've got a bonus episode coming up in just a couple of days, it will appear in your feed with another one of the UK's best climbers, um, certainly the UK's best climber for a number of years. And this happened, and it's going to happen multiple times throughout this season, because as I was preparing for this podcast, I decided I better message multiple people, because some of these people are not going to get back to me. Some of them are just going to you know, talk to me at first and then ghost me. Um, so I need to have somebody for each episode. And in a few cases, several of those people have messaged me back, and I want to talk to all of them. So that's what I'm doing. And uh, I just recorded this morning with this person, and it was a really fun conversation getting to talk about these full circle moments that he's had with Ben Moon um, across the evolution of his own climbing. Um, a pun intended there, but not not the direct pun. So if you follow the pun too closely, you might not get it. All right, you guys, I'm going to let my voice rest here. Um, again, there is going to be a giveaway just for all of you stoners uh, in a couple of weeks. All right, Harps, you want to say bye now that you're fully awake? Bye.
All right, you guys, thank you for listening. And uh, I'll see you again in just a couple of days.